Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to worship you, to fellowship with one another. Lord, just to to learn from your word the things that you have to teach us. Uh, and uh, Lord, what a just what a privilege it is to be able to gather together for Sunday school and to to dive into um, uh, these important topics. Um, Lord, we are so thankful for the salvation that you have provided in Christ. Um, and uh, Lord, it is it is such a great work as we have uh, studied over the over the past several months. And Lord, as we will continue to study. Uh, Lord, I just pray that, that these things would uh, just delve deep into our minds, that they would be a part of our consciousness, a part of our, our thought life, um, and Lord, that they would impact us, that they would cause us to, to live uh, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us. Um, God, you have given us uh, such a rich trove of theology in your word, and uh, God, you put it there uh, for the building up of your church. And so, God, I pray that you would accomplish your will. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, it's it's good to do some introductory stuff um, right at the beginning. Um, uh, the way that I like to do the Sunday school is I, uh, I like it to be an interactive class. I know some people like to do more of a lecture type thing, but um, I definitely like it to be interactive. So um, feel free to ask questions. Um, basically, just whenever you have a question, jump in. You can raise your hand or you can just speak up. Um, I'm slightly hard of hearing, so take that into account. You may have to speak loudly to, um, to get your question in. Um, and then be prepared to be asked questions. I like to ask questions. I like to try to make you guys think. Um, and um, don't be embarrassed if you have the wrong answer. Um, that's, I know that can be a real hindrance. If, if somebody thinks they might know the answer, but they're not sure if they're right, they're like, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to look stupid. Um, the, the goal is to learn, not to show how smart you are. So um, I would encourage you, like, you know, if you think you might know, offer an answer and, you know, try to be humble enough to be corrected if, if you're wrong and realize, okay, I just needed to learn some more. So, and I know that's a hard thing to do, but um, I would encourage you to, um, to approach things that way. So in the fall, um, we covered the doctrine of the atonement, uh, loosely following the outline provided by John Murray in his excellent book, Redemption, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, we have seen how redemption was accomplished, and then over the next few months, we're going to consider how redemption is applied. Uh, ben Johnson and I will be using uh, John Murray uh, for our jumping off point. Um, reading the book is not required, um, but it is certainly recommended. Um, Last I looked, there are still some copies um, back in the back, so if you don't own a copy, then there are copies available. Um, so if you, if you uh, want to help prepare yourself for the lessons, if you want to dig into the topics further, we're not going to talk about every single thing that John Murray says, um, so you will certainly gain some things by reading it, then um, it's, a, it's a good choice. Um, if you want to dig even deeper, um, Saved by Grace uh, by Anthony Hokema. Um, it's essentially an expanded version of the second half of John Murray's book. Um, so it covers basically the same material. Obviously, there's some slight differences. Um, and it's a, it's a thicker book. You're going to get uh, a deeper look at things. Um, it's, a, it's an excellent book. I read it a number of years ago, and um, I will definitely be heavily consulting it throughout the study. So... Um, and, of course, the Westminster Standards uh, devote large sections to the topics we're going to be talking about. Um, so, um, and they, they do it in a very concise and thorough way, which is two things that are often hard to put together, but the Westminster Assembly managed that. So, that's what we're going to be talking about. Any questions before we dive in? All right. So, 
Anthony Hokuma, in his book, writes, uh, By his total obedience to the Father and his suffering, death, and resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ earned for us salvation from sin and from all its results. But this saving work of Christ will avail us nothing until it has been applied to our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 29, says, How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Anybody just happen to have that memorized? No? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the official application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. Very good. Very good. So we are made partakers by application by the Holy Spirit. So, um, I know you guys don't have um, Pokemon's work in front of you. You may not have the catechism in front of you either. Um, is there any similarity you, you catch between those two statements? Uh, the one that Pokemon makes and the, and the one in the catechism. I'll just read them again here. So, Pokemon says, By his total obedience to the Father and by his suffering, death, and resurrection... Our Lord Jesus Christ earned for us salvation from sin and from all its results. But this saving work of Christ will avail us nothing until it has been applied to our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the answer is, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Yeah, application by the Spirit. So, um... Both of both of those statements, that's something that is definitely brought in. It's the Holy Spirit who applies the redemption to us. Um, that's a an important concept. Um, it's one we will see uh, throughout our study. Um, this one uh, good example verse is Titus three five, probably a a very familiar verse. Um, Titus three five says. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we're not going to belabor this point this morning. Um, We're going to have ample opportunity to see the activity of the Holy Spirit in the application of redemption throughout the study as we talk about the different aspects of of the application of redemption, uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit will uh, become evident in the various texts that we look at. Um, but here we see um, this being applied here in Titus 3.5. Um, my next point here is um, Paul here tells us in Titus 3.5 that we have been saved by the activity of the Holy Spirit specifically in the act of regeneration. So my question is, does being saved and being regenerated mean the same thing? What do you think? Okay, yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so um, saved can be, you know, um, we talk about the golden chain, you know, those who are, those who, uh, those who are sanctified will be glorified and will be justified. So in one sense, you can say, you know, yes, you are saved and you are being saved. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, people you know, use it for shorthand for after regeneration, you know, mm-hmm. it's regeneration precedes faith. Then you have faith and you're justified. So somebody mm-hmm. use that as shorthand for justification. Mm-hmm. So right. either or. Right. So saved, um, salvation, that term um, has a certain amount of flexibility to it, right? Um, both in um, the Bible and in our everyday speech, um, the term is used flexibly. Sometimes we we use it to refer to redemption as a whole. Uh, sometimes it is used to refer to a specific aspect of our redemption. Um, and you know, it just varies depending on context. 
because yeah, it can be it can be used there's to refer specifically to justification. It can be used to refer specifically to regeneration. We use it that way. The Bible uses it that way. So, but there's there is a tendency sometimes for people to just think of salvation as just like it's just one thing, um, and not really think about that there's different aspects to it. Uh, John Murray uh, says, when we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes. So that's going to be really the bulk of what we're talking about throughout this study. Um, So there's going to be all these different topics. Uh, Ryan's already given us uh, some examples there where he talked about uh, regeneration and justification and glorification. Um, these are various aspects here. So, taking the lead from the inspired scriptures, theologians have wisely attempted to codify a series of terms to refer to the aspects of redemption. Uh, to some of us, they're going to be very familiar terms. To others, they may be obscure um, and uh, difficult to define. Um, there are things like justification, sanctification, regeneration, faith, repentance, uh, just to name a few. So we're going to attempt to look at each of these, to understand what they mean, uh, to understand how they relate to one another. And as I hope you will see as we work through the material, uh, there is great value in having a solid grasp on these things. Many dangerous errors can be avoided, and many destructive patterns of life can be rejected if we have a solid grasp on these truths. From the false gospel that threatened to condemn the Galatians to the abandonment of evangelism on the basis of God's sovereignty, uh, God explained these doctrines in his word for the good of the church, not simply as intellectual exercises. There can be a temptation just like, oh, we've got, got this systematized list of, of the different aspects of, of salvation and so we just you know, have this fun intellectual exercise as we try to categorize them and see how they relate to each other. Um, but, and, you know, sure, but that, in a sense that's fine, but that's not all it is. It really is important for our every, everyday Christian life. So, um, and for, for people who are like, eh, I'm just not into the intellectual exercises, I don't really need to know this. Um, it really is important that all of us as Christians know these things. These are important things. That's one of the reasons why the Westminster Assembly put it into the catechism to lay these things out because it's important for us to know these things. So, so I want to spend the remainder of our time today talking about some of the overarching characteristics that we can expect to encounter as we look at each topic and how the topics relate to each other. Before I do, pause again. Anybody have any questions about what we're talking about, where we're going? Is this all clear? All right. I hear silence. Hopefully that's not just because you're all sleeping. All right. So... First thing is duration. So I want to return to, um, to, to Murray's statement that I quoted. Uh, he says, when we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes. So what do you think he means by acts and, and processes? What, what's he what's he getting at when he's using those two terms? Well, for example, um, there's our justification, mm-hmm. which is a one-time act. We are declared righteous uh, legally before God, mm-hmm. pardoned because of the blood of Christ, mm-hmm. for our sin. But then there is um, our salvation in relation to the power that sin holds over our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we are there is a definitive. Sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not no longer completely dead in our sin or anything like that. Uh, we remain holy. 
but that holiness works itself out in our life all the way to when we die to go to be with Jesus because um, we still struggle with sin for our lives because <coughs> it is a process, not an right. act. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 very much a looking at it from a perspective of like how much time does this take? There are some things um, in our redemption that are just a one simple act. They might have ongoing consequences, but the thing itself is just a single act that just takes a moment of time. Whereas there are other things that are a process, and the classic example is the distinction between justification and sanctification. There's justification, single act, sanctification is a process that goes on. Um, One thing that's interesting um, is the same distinction appears in the language of the Westminster Standards uh, the Westminster Assembly was very careful to distinguish between an act and a work. Uh, question 33 of the Shorter Catechism says, justification, what is, the question is, what is justification? And justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And in question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So you can see right there, they just phrased it differently. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Um... I guarantee you that this difference was very deliberate. It wasn't just variation in word order or in in, in word choice. Um, they, uh, you know, a casual reading you might not notice it, but they were uh, very. Um, they wanted to make it very clear that some aspects of the application of redemption are instantaneous, and some of them are a process over time. So, as we go over the various aspects of redemption, we're going to see that, that some of them are instantaneous and some of them are a process. Second, I want to point out that the person acting in each of these will vary. Uh, You might assume that since the Holy Spirit is applying redemption to us, that the Holy Spirit is always the actor. Uh, But at, at certain points, the redeemed sinner will be the actor. Uh, though it's always in a way that's consistent with God's sovereignty. Uh, Faith and repentance, for example, are actions that we perform. We don't want to say that God is the one who believes or God is the one who repents for us. Uh, Those are not true. Um, it It is we, the sinner, who have faith in Christ. It is we, the sinner, who repent. Um, though the Bible explicitly tells us that these are gifts from God. So it's consistent with the sovereignty of God and salvation, uh, but these are acts that we perform. Uh, There will also be times when we find that a different member of the Trinity uh, is the primary actor in a particular aspect uh, of the application of redemption, though we speak of the Spirit being the one who applies the redemption to us. Um, So... There's going to be you know, some difference as we look at the different aspects about who is the one who is acting specifically in that particular aspect of redemption. Any questions about that? That's a pretty straightforward one. Another one, and this is, um, this was suggested by one of you two, I can't remember which. Um, some aspects of the application are what we would call judicial, forensic, or legal. Um, others are what we would call transformative, renovative, involving moral reformation. Now, I tried to like pick words that are like you know the common words and explanatory, but does that make sense? What? How would how would uh, just gonna offer the opportunity for somebody to like rephrase those? Uh, or explain in sentence form. What do you think those mean? Any thoughts? So we have on the one side, we have um, judicial, forensic, or legal. On the other side, we have transformative, 
renovated? So the first set would have to do with our standing before God. Okay. Whereas the second would talk about uh, how that standing changes you know, our, our lives and the difference that it makes and sort of the application like we're talking about mm-hmm. this yeah. semester. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very much I mean the first one, you know, we 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 think of it in legal terms, it is very much like a courtroom type setting. It's like how are you viewed under the law? How does God view you? That's the kind of the the issue at stake there. Whereas the the transformative, the renovative, is like what what has changed in you? What what is actually different about who you are because of this redemption? Um, now those distinctions don't apply equally over every aspect of redemption. So um, there's there's some of those there's some of the aspects of redemption where this isn't really going to be a big uh, point of contention. But there are aspects of redemption where it's vitally important. Um, justification and sanctification is the classic example. Justification is completely and totally a legal aspect, a forensic aspect of our redemption. Um, people have fallen into great errors when they have attempted to give transformative power to justification. That's not its intention. Um, and on the reverse, sanctification, that is transformative. That is a change of who we are. But Chris, don't, don't yes. you think that uh, that that distinction is really important? You know, and people have fallen into error mm-hmm. over the years. And I mean, maybe even something as simple as people who will talk about how they've prayed a prayer or professed Christ, and yet there's no change apparent in their lives or something like that. And yet they would fully believe that they are a Christian, not understanding. Mm-hmm. You know that those two things do go together. Like I said, mm-hmm. they may not apply in every single situation equally, right. but you know, as categories, mm-hmm. they must both be there for yeah. redemption to have accomplished yeah. and accomplished. Yeah, and you and you bring up another really good point there in that, like all of these aspects of redemption, um, they're they're not things that you can take piecemeal. Um, this is all the work of the Spirit in applying the redemption of Christ to us. Christ accomplished this redemption perfectly. We talked about that in the fall. Um, And for all of God's people, the Spirit applies that redemption to them. And we can talk about it in all these different aspects, but he doesn't apply certain of these things and not others. Every single one of these things that we're going to be talking about is the uh, the possession of the believer. Um, You know, some of them is only like we only have a foretaste of those things, um, but ultimately, um, all of these things will be fully ours um, because of what Christ has done for us. So, yes, good point. Now, the uh, the big uh, the big issue. Um, that always is a big part of this discussion is the order. Um, much can be said about the the order of application. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Latin term ordo salutis. It simply means order of salvation. Um, quite frequently when people speak about this topic, they will use that Latin phrase, ordo salutis. Um, talks about just the, the order of a the application of redemption. And so how do we structure these things? What's the relationship uh, between them? Is there an order at all? Um, How do we understand that order? Um, So to begin with, uh, I think a biblical case can be made for establishing an order. Um, I think most Reformed theologians have have, uh, maintained that perspective. Um, I think you can find that in the Westminster Standards. we're going to attempt to, to look at that shortly here from the Bible and see um, basically a justification for that. Uh, but first, um, I want to attempt to clarify something that people often find confusing when they first encounter these discussions. Um, the first is that when we talk about order, 
we often think of it in terms of this happens and then there's a pause and then this happens and then there's a pause and this happens and so we have this idea of a temporal order where um, the first thing is true for a while before the second thing becomes true and then the second thing is true for a while before the third thing becomes true um, and one thing that's important to understand as we talk about this order is that while that will be the case in some aspects of redemption it is not that way for all aspects of redemption um, there are some of them that there is a, an order that can be called a logical order um, now you might say well what does that mean you know there's logical versus illogical uh, but no the idea is that there's a causal order um, that the one thing causes the other but um, we don't want to think of there being any gap of time between those things um, for example um, one, one thing we're going to talk about is that regeneration precedes faith in a causal order in a logical order but the idea that there are people who are regenerate but have not yet had faith that there's some kind of time gap between them um, is not a biblical idea um, all regenerate people have faith instantly the moment uh, they are regenerated um, and so it's we can speak of that order because faith is caused in some sense by regeneration we'll delve into that more as we get to that um, but we don't want to think of it as in a temporal order does that make sense and that can be a i mean i i know just from from past discussions that's something that can definitely trip people up so i really want to make sure am i being clear on that is everybody is everybody following anybody have questions about that All right. Um, if I may, well, you bet. I, I was going to say, I think it, it helps also just to think, just to remember the fact that this is a work of the Spirit overall, mm -hmm. and God is not bound by how we think of things. That's true. And so when He does, when He accomplishes salvation, is He does it, and it's uh, from our perspective, it can be just instant, mm -hmm. and um, we may not realize it right away, but. Right, it's an in, it's an instant thing, but yet all these processes are going on in there, uh, not bound by our the ways we think of time right. or anything like that. Yes, that is very true. So another thing, um, just for clarity's sake, um, is sometimes uh, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Um, is portrayed as in a strict sequential order. Um, but I think it's more helpful to view it more of a branching order. Um, if you just simply, you know, and in a sense it's like we're going to be looking at these just in a list, in an order. Um, but the fact is, is that some of them are actually even logically simultaneous. Um, and that you can't put any kind of even causal order between them. And so, you know, you might have it where it's like, okay, you've got this point here, and the next one down, well, it's like, well, there's actually two, so it just kind of branches off like that. So, it's, it's very useful to think of this in terms of order, but don't be so rigid in your view of what we mean by an order that you just want to follow a line just straight down. Uh, because there's a lot of things where it's like, okay, there's this um, aspect of our redemption that we receive, and the direct result of that is these other things. Um, and so there's no there's no relationship between the those things. They're just all they just all come together. Uh, but we still have to talk about them in an order um, because you know, it's like we we have to we have to present things one by one for a lesson. So, does that make sense? Um, and there are debates about certain elements of the order. Um, I mean, within reform circles, there's a large amount of agreement 
on the whole, on the on the order, on the relationship between these different elements of redemption. Um, and so I think we'll be, you know, largely on safe ground here. But um, there are areas where there's going to be some debate. Um, we'll try to point that out as we go. Um, the order in which we're presenting the material um, through the lesson is largely following, you know, just the standard order. But there are certain elements of the discussion of the application of redemption that, um, you know, you could fit them in in different places. Um, so the, uh, the order that we are going to go in our discussion uh, is next week. Uh, ben will be teaching us on effectual calling. Um, and then we are going to talk about regeneration. And then we're going to talk about faith. And then repentance. Um, oftentimes those are just grouped together as a single unit, but we're going to divide them up. Um, then we have union with Christ, which is definitely one that can be placed in different spots in the discussion. Um, and then justification, and then adoption, uh, and then sanctification, and then perseverance, and then assurance, uh, and then glorification. Um, and assurance is one that is often not included per se, um, but I thought it would be good to have a lesson on that as well. So that's our that's our general plan. Subject to change, of course. Um, but that is the general plan. So. Any questions about any of that? <clears throat> All right. So, as far as showing that the Bible does indeed present an order, um, there's a number of passages where you can see an order, um, in some sense, between you know one or two different elements of the application of redemption. Um, and we're going to be looking at those as we go through those different ones so that we can kind of see how they relate to each other. Uh, but like the most important passage in reference to the order um, is, I think, universally acknowledged to be Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Um, so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that passage and seeing what we can learn from that. <laughs> Romans 8, 28-30. Here we have um, five different elements, um, five different actions. Um, Not all of them, strictly speaking, are in the order of application. Some of them are for things um, that fall outside of that category, but still are involved in an order um, of some sense. And so we're going to try to make the case that Paul intended these things to be viewed in the order he presented them. That he, was, he wasn't just randomly uh, putting these five different actions down um, in just whatever order he happened to write them down, but that he intended them to be viewed in uh, a sequential order. So Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, my first question is, if there's a list in the Bible, does it necessarily indicate an order? What do you think?
hard question. I'm sure there are some lists that probably don't have an order, but I can't think of them right now. Okay. Like most lists I think of are like genealogies, which definitely have an right. order to them. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, uh, the answer is not all lists in the Bible are intended to have an order. Um, in fact, something that people who don't like the idea of an order of the application of redemption, um, they point out that like sometimes these benefits are presented in different orders in different passages of Scripture. Um, so it's, uh, it's like, well, you know, it's presented in different orders, then how can we say there's an order, you know? Why should we say that Paul has a particular order in mind in this particular passage? Um, but if we look at the context, if we look at the way that this is structured, um, hopefully we can derive from it the idea that Paul did intend um, an order. <laughs> so, um, first point. Um, we have um, in verses 28 and 29, we have um, God's purpose and we have the call. So it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are uh, together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So that phrase there at the end, called according to purpose. Um, What does that mean? What does it mean to be called according to purpose? Can we derive any notions of order from that? Very least intentionality. Okay, intentionality. How does intentionality work? There's a certain outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So you want something, you have some intention. And you do something in order to get the proper outcome, right? So, just looking at that, um, it really doesn't make any sense if we um, try to uh, switch that around and basically say, um, you know, that that things happen in in the reverse order. Um, That basically that God called us um, in order to get a purpose, basically, right? I mean, if we if we flip it around to where it's in a different order, then that's what we wind up with. Um, in verse verse twenty nine, um, the uh, the purpose of God is um, expanded on. It's it's um, let's see. It's basically explained as um, foreknowing and predestining to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? That's what his purpose is, is to conform us to the image of his son. Um, so when we consider this, like, he's done these things for this purpose, um, it, it really, it just doesn't make any sense to flip it around and say that he called us and then basically like developed this purpose afterwards. just does not seem to be at all what Paul is saying. So there seems to be a relation here, a, a causal relationship, an order um, between the calling and the purpose of God and the actions of the purpose we see in verse 29. Um... If we look just specifically in verse 29, um, it seems that there's a progression of thought from foreknow to predestine. Um, how would we? How would we? Ex- how would you describe what's going on there? Um, what does it mean when it says those whom he foreknew, and what does it mean when it talks about predestined? What What are those? What are those terms referring to? Knowing beforehand and mm-hmm. determining the destiny beforehand. Right. Okay. So knowing beforehand um, and determining the destiny beforehand. All right. Um, 
is there can we see any particular relationship between those two? And the ones that he predestines are the ones he foreknows. Right. Uh, not anyone else that he's doing that. Right. Would it make sense to flip that around and say those whom he predestined he foreknew? You're determining a destiny of something abstract and then you're knowing what that is later. Right, so yeah. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really fit, does it? Yes. No. So, again, we see um, that there, there seems to be like an order between foreknew and predestined. I think in this case it's two of the same thing. You're, you're making a distinction of something that's the same thing. Or um, because in the mind of God, everything that has happened is something that he knew before it happened. Mm-hmm. And then because he knew it, it that's how it's going to be. Right. It's, um, I, I want to avoid the distinction of, the, uh, well, because, because he foreknew something, therefore he's decided to make that be the case. It's um, they're both part of the same thing, like two sides of a coin. Right. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. Um, I think though, um, and we don't really have time to to develop this thought, but um, this is certainly like something that is I think pretty universally agreed amongst Reformed theologians that when we see uh, this this notion of God foreknowing people, that really the idea is the uh, the idea of God loving them beforehand. Um, it's him setting his love on them. Um, arguments can be made for that. Um, it's not the idea of basically of God um, passively understanding the truths of what will happen. Um, and so this is, um, in fact, often parallel to what you see in Ephesians 1 4, uh, or 1 3 and 4, maybe, where um, in love God predestined us. Um, and so it's the, it's the idea of God setting us, his love on us that's the he foreknew us um, and because he set his love on us then he determined this outcome for him you could almost say he chose us because he chose us he predestined us yes which yeah okay and that, yeah okay to me that's still the because to choose and to predestine, I still see the same thing. It's just yeah, I think there is a distinction, though. I, I um, agree. I, I think there is a distinction. I'm just still thinking, just like two sides of a coin. Yeah, it's they're they're, they're definitely very related. They're very related. They're, they're right. almost they're, there's a distinction, but it's not something you can separate. Right. That is true. That is true. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, another point is. Um, that both foreknew and predestined uh, have a prefix meaning before, uh, both in the Greek and in the English, uh, signaling a pre-creation character of these acts. Um, the verbs called, justified, and glorified, uh, all post-creation actions uh, do not have this feature. Um, and so I think that indicates a clear order between pre-creation and post-creation actions. So you see that the pre-creation actions of God foreknowing and predestining, and then the post-creation actions of calling, justifying, and glorifying. So um, again, we have another indication of order in the text. Next, um, within the three post-creation verbs, um, some order of priority is unavoidable. Um, at least that's my contention. What would you say? We have we have calling, we have justification, and we have glorification. Would it be possible to um, say that glorification comes before? Either calling or justification? 
No, that just that just wouldn't make sense, would it? Does not fit at all with the rest of scripture. What's that? Does not fit at all with what we know right, from the rest yeah. of scripture. Right, right. So clearly, um, I mean, whatever we do with the relationship between calling and justification, clearly Paul put the thing that comes after them after them in the text. So I mean, so far it's like. Um, we've got four points here so far. John Murray goes through five. We're going to look at the fifth one here in a moment. I, I switched his order up a little bit, but you can you can review this material in his in his uh, book. Um, so far, it's like every time we like try to look at relationships between these words, they wind up being in order. He didn't do any swapping of order and putting things um, out of order of how they actually happen. Um, so finally, um, verse 29 through 30, um, and this is just looking at it as the whole thing. It's, it seems to present a chain of events, um, stringing together five verbs that spring from God's foreknowing and terminate in God's glorifying. Um, so that also should be a strong indication that God, that, yeah, that God in this text is intending to set forth an order starting in eternity past with the foreknowing and ending in glorification. There's just so many indications that in this particular text, that's what's intended. We should see an order. So, um, unfortunately, or maybe not unfortunately, but for our purposes, unfortunately, um, Paul did not fill in all the gaps with all the other aspects of redemption. Um, we do not see sanctification here. We do not see adoption here. Um, so putting them into the order just based on this text is a little difficult. Um, but this does give us basically a framework. It gives us a, a picture of we have an order. We have some of the major points in the order. Um, and as we go through, we will be able to discuss how these different, excuse me, aspects of redemption relate to each other, um, and we can, at least to some degree, piece together in order. Uh, again, there's there's some debate on some issues, so there are going to be some of these points that are still debatable, um, but we'll just tackle each of those as we come to them as we go through this study. But, but Chris, don't you think, too, though, you know, while it would be nice if we filled in all those little gaps, that wasn't the purpose of this mm-hmm. particular text. If right. you think about the argument he's making, he's mm-hmm. talking about right. the justification and where that's yeah. leading. So it yeah. makes sense why he did it that yeah. way. So. Yeah, that's that's why I kind of corrected myself where I said, unfortunately, and it's like, well, not really unfortunately, <laughs> but unfortunately for our purpose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it'd be nice for our purpose if you just laid it all out. But... Obviously, he included exactly what was intended by the Holy Spirit in that particular place. So, yes, he was doing exactly what he should have done for that text. Um, but uh, it does mean we'll have to do a little bit more legwork on the rest of it. So, that hopefully is a bit of an introduction on um, the application of redemption to believers, the order of application, some of the overarching points we're going to be looking at. Does anybody have any uh, thoughts or questions um, before we close? All just so clear that all your questions have been answered. I kind of think going back to what you were saying. So, So many of these things they're, they're almost like two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. There's a distinction that needs to be made, mm-hmm. but yet you cannot separate them. Mm-hmm. It's, yes. It's Just like, for example, the duality of Christ's nature. Yes. He's human, but he's also divine. Mm-hmm. They're to be distinguished, but never separated. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. absolutely true. But I also, I also appreciate the thinking of in terms, instead of like a linear... Um, one thing happening after another, mm-hmm. think of it in terms of causality. Mm-hmm. And a cause can have more than one effect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so two things can be derived from that same cause and be happening concurrently with each mm-hmm. other, yet they still need to be distinguished. Yes. And, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 
And hopefully all the distinctions we make will be derived from Scripture. That's the goal, at least. Um, you know, if we, if we fail, then I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the goal, is that we're going to be deriving these distinctions from Scripture. And clearly, um, the biblical authors made all sorts of distinctions about the way that salvation is applied to us. So hopefully we can learn from that. Anything else? Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, truly it is a, a great privilege to, in a sense, peer behind the curtain to see the, uh, the great particulars of how you have saved us. And uh, Lord, I, I, I do pray that we would be biblical as we study these things, that we would just come to a more true understanding of your work of salvation. And uh, Lord, uh, that we would see how these things apply to us, that we would um, be guarded against error, that we would um, just live our lives uh, more in conformity to the word that you have set forth. Um, Lord, that even though some of this stuff may be difficult intellectually, that we would see the importance of it and would apply ourselves to an accurate understanding of your word. Um, and Lord, just that you would be glorified through this study. And Lord, we also pray that you would be with us as we um, go into our regular worship service, that um, you would just have our hearts and minds focused on you, um, on the, the preaching of your word, on the singing of your praises, bringing our, our prayers and petitions to you. Lord, you are so worthy of our worship, and um, it is such a privilege to be able to come together and to worship you. So, Lord, I just pray that you would bless our time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.